Joined from Saskatoon by Dr. Marc-André Pigeon, who is an assistant professor in the Graduate School of Public Policy at the University of Saskatchewan. And he's also the director of the Canadian Centre for the Study of Co-ops. Dr. Pigeon, Marc-André, good morning. Welcome. Thank you very much. Pleasure to be here. It's good to have you with us. Uh, Mountain Equipment Co-op, of course, a a story very dear to the hearts of many folks here on the West Coast. And yet you, uh, how long have you been sitting back uh, at at your comfortable distance, Marc-Andre, watching this thing go down and having, how long ago did you identify this as a likely failure based on what you see as avoidable governance issues? Yeah, so it's a good question. I've been a member, oh, since the early 1990s, you know, and my store was the uh, Ottawa store. I think that was one of the first stores that MEC really expanded okay. out of the kind of West Coast. Mm-hmm. Um, but I started kind of really paying attention, and, and, you know, this is one of the challenges. As a member, I wasn't always paying attention to what was going on in the governance practices. But around 2014, 15, I remember there were some stories uh, in the Globe and Mail that were calling attention to these governance changes that happened in 2012 and 13. And that's when those changes really started to bite because the board at the time started kind of saying, well, you're, you, you want to run for the board. We do have a democratic system, uh, but you're not eligible because you don't m- meet these criteria. You don't have this skill set. You haven't worked in a big, you know, retailer somewhere else. Uh, and so I'm sorry, we appreciate your effort, but um, you just don't cut it. Interesting. And so when those started, started bubbling up, I said, okay, there's something going on. So they started restricting access to even candidacy for uh, the membership in the Board of Governors? Well, you could put your name forward, but you wouldn't get on the ballot. I mean, so that, yeah, effectively. I mean, so the, 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 they had a, a criteria, set of criteria, and they adopted a change in their rules around 2012-13 that gave the board this power to say, okay, you can put your name forward, of course, but... Uh, we're not going to get you past that. We're not going to put you on the ballot if you don't meet the criteria. And even if you did meet the criteria, the board would say, well, these here's our slate of candidates who meet the criteria, but we're going to recommend, you know, say there's five spots, five more people re- you know, meet the threshold, but three spots. We're going to recommend three of the five. And, and those are the ones we strongly recommend or urge our members to vote for. Uh-huh. So, you know, there were kind of two hurdles. You know, you got in, meet the criteria, but then you had to, had to please the board even more to kind of get the nod sort of thing. As these changes were being made, and you being a member through all of the uh, the rollover to this new attitude and new approach, were you as a member informed at all as to the changing attitudes of the board as, as demonstrated through these new criteria? Well, I mean, we, we would have been, yes, and we were. I mean, we these things were brought to the attention of members. Members voted for these changes. Okay. They were not uh, imposed. But And this is the challenge with any, uh, I think, any democracy. Uh, you, unless you're paying attention, uh, you can find yourself with, uh, you know, decision makers that you made you know, or, and decisions and rules that you, you know, upon reflection might not have uh, supported. So I think this is one of the challenges, you know, MEC's voting turnout um you know, typically, and this is not unusual in bigger co-ops, you know, one to three yeah. percent, somewhere in there. Of oh, the I membership. believe that. Yeah. 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 And you can, I mean, there's a parallel. It's not, it's not as, it's not as dramatic, of course, in our, in our general society, but you see the declining membership uh, voting in our political system over the last few decades. And that's reflected somewhat in the, in the cooperative sector as well. Can I ask you a rudimentary question, Mark andre yeah, sure. uh, Why did you become a member in the first place, sir? Well, so this this is a question. It's a really good question because I think, like my like many many people, I became a member because it was the place I, that I, I want to buy my stuff at. <laughs> okay. It wasn't any. It wasn't motivated by any uh, desire to be a co op member per se. So you're, you're just an, just an outdoorsy guy, and this is the best place to buy your gear. Right. right. It was, and this I think this was the case for a lot of people, a, a lot of people. But then you know, there's always a segment of people that kind of say, hey, well, what is this? Why do I have to? What's this thing about buying a membership chair? What is this little green card that you're giving me? And, and that, that provokes, um, you know, some more, a different kind of relationship. And, and so when I bought my membership, I think it was like 1992, three, somewhere in there. And, uh, you know, I was only dimly aware of cooperatives. I was a credit union member, but I didn't really engage. I wasn't like I am now <laughs> very much interested in this stuff. Right. Uh, and so it was just something I did, you know, and I had to buy a tent and I was going backpacking and, uh, you know, this, this is the best place to buy the stuff. They're the coolest store, the most knowledgeable uh, people. And 
you know, I wanted that MEC backpack when I was trekking around Southeast Asia. And everyone did. did everyone did. As a member, were you able to take advantage of really decent prices as well? I think so. I think so. I mean, that, I don't remember that as being my driving motivation. I just remember that they had a, a niche. And this is an important point. They had a kind of a niche. In, and certainly in Ottawa, there weren't um, any stores that kind of had that same vibe and same expansive products that uh, were you know, targeted to the kind of stuff I want to do. Right. And, and, uh, and the cool store, they really had a cool store. It just felt different. Yeah. Um, and so I think it was more that, although I'm sure the price was, was fine. I just don't remember that as being my driving motivation. I was a poor student. So, it must have been at least okay. <laughs> good prices. Exactly. But I, I agree with you that that's one of the, the real attractions, at least for me, uh, was simply the fact that it, it's just, it was just a cool place to go shop. Mark Andre, yeah. it was, it was a yeah. great, such confidence, uh, on the part of the staff. You basically, you got a problem. You got a question about anything outdoors. We got you covered. Come on in. And, and exactly. so, uh, but as a member, uh, because some co-ops do, some don't, were you able to profit share? You know, I, I did not ever see anything, and it may have just been kind of bad luck, you know, the years I bought my gear, because um, I didn't shop there every day, or, you know, I wasn't that kind of hardcore outdoorsy person. Uh, you know, it could have been those years that they didn't declare a patronage payment, or um, if they did, I, I didn't get the notice because I moved a lot as a student. You changed sure, places, and you weren't always updating your, your address, so... I think, you know, it's hard for me to say for sure. I do know when I was looking at this, uh, you know, as the news kind of broke that they were being sold, and um, uh, I, I went and looked at their financials for the last 20-odd years, and, and they had until very recently been paying pretty substantial patronage payments. I mean, those patronage payments were essentially eating up all their retained earnings. Now, the interesting thing is they were paid in shares, and so they could use the money, they could still use the money to invest and, and expand, uh, but in theory, anyway, the members had a growing claim on the value of the uh, co-op. Right. Uh, and, and occasionally, and I haven't mapped this out, but I, I, I will do this, um, but occasionally MEC would say, okay, you know, Mark Andre, let's use myself for an example, although this didn't happen to me, uh, you, you've accumulated, uh, you know, $200 of member equity. Right. Uh, we're going to pay you out $50 in cash mm-hmm. or rebate or something like that. That never happened to me, but I think, again, it's because I moved a lot, <laughs> and they may have just lost my address. So I, I'm pretty sure it happened to a lot of people, but I don't know how often that happened. We're talking about Mar- Mountain Equipment Co-op uh, with uh, Dr. Marc-Andre Pigeon at the University of Saskatchewan, who's written a piece about this at theconversation.com. And one of the things that you you note that was, uh, was noteworthy was back in 2012, uh, they dropped the word co-op from its marketing campaign mm-hmm. did that now you'd been a member by 2012 you'd been a member since the 90s maybe 10 15 years by then you were pretty locked into what was going on when they ditched the co- the uh, the the co-op from the marketing campaign did that raise any red flags for you at the time or was that just oh another twist to the plot no big deal yeah, no, that, 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 you know, that's a good point. I mentioned earlier, I was reading the news stories maybe two or three years later that that really tweaked me. But when they dropped the co-op, uh, that was a concern. I mean, we've seen that happen in other way, other places, and it's always a bit of a, a bit of a red flag. Um, not all, not, 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 I shouldn't say always, often. Um, but it, it's, um, it was a concern. It, it, it kind of, it, it just weakened that that sense of uh, ownership that a member might have had, right. and it would have been. A, and as, as I said earlier, it's not an obvious sense of ownership. A lot of people just go there because they want to buy stuff, mm-hmm. uh, and uh, they don't they don't really think too much about the ownership part. But you take the word co op off, um, that just makes it even that much more difficult to realize that there's something different from a governance perspective about this organization. So you, you know, it is meaningful, and it did it did did tweak me, but I it didn't get me overly worked up at the time it was more of those later stories that i read about those governance changes in 2012 well let me let me quote from your article researchers have shown that big cooperatives often fail when they drift away from cooperative principles and values especially 
Democratic representation. And then you go on to say MEC made all the classic mistakes. They built a leadership team that lacked any obvious understanding of cooperatives and fostered a culture that started to see member of involvement as a problem rather than a strength. And there you were, just a regular outdoorsy guy with a membership card who drew, whose status in the eyes of the board actually changed uh, from uh, active member to kind of a problem. Yeah, I mean, a problem to the extent that if I'd want to run for the board, um, they would have had to try to turn me away. And then, and they don't, you know, they because I would not have met the criteria, that is for sure. And 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 so, you know, they, they don't want, that's, that's, that's a hassle. <laughs> it's a hassle because, you know, I could make a record. And that's exactly what happened in those stories that started bubbling up later. People were getting turned away, and some of them weren't, weren't very quiet about it. Yeah. And, and that has reputational damage. Our guest on the line from Saskatchewan is Dr. Marc-André Pigeon, who is a professor in the School of uh, Graduate School of Public Policy. And he's also, uh, interestingly, uh, at the Canadian Centre for the Study of Co-ops. And I have to tell you, Marc-André, very few people listening were even aware that such an institution uh, exists in Canada. And in fact, it's been around since the mid-80s. Tell us a little bit more about it, please. Yeah, sure. Thank you. Uh, well, so, you know, the interesting thing is, of course, Saskatchewan and, and, and Manitoba and the prairies in general, and even BC, but have had a kind of long and storied history with cooperatives. Sure. In, in Saskatchewan, um, we used to have this wheat pool, which kind of dominated the landscape, like literally dominated the landscape. All those iconic images of grain elevators, you know, those are probably wheat pool elevators. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, we have, of course, we have the major co-op retailing chain here that stretches all the way to BC and into uh, Western Ontario as well, mm-hmm. uh, Northwestern Ontario. Um, so there's a couple of really big anchor co-ops and of course the wheat pool is no longer, but there was also AgriCore and there were, you know, dozens of really pretty substantial cooperatives in this, in this part of the, the world. So I think that, that was the impetus for creating um, the center way back in the eighties. It was like, Hey, we have this really big sector. It employs a lot of people. Yep. And it's it's an important part of our economy, but we don't study it in university. We don't. When you go to business school, you don't learn anything about it. Um, if you're studying policy, public policy, you don't learn anything about it. Um, why aren't we talking about it more? We should be proud of this. So that that was kind of the genesis of this this place uh, back in the '80s. Well, and you talk about the 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 uh, mountain equipment co-op going off the rails in, in in and around the early 2010s, 2012, for example. Marketeers mm-hmm. decided to lose the co-op part of the branding for marketing purposes. Uh, there was a lot of expansion going on. Uh, yeah. There were a lot of changes at the board level with respect to who even belonged on the board as they saw themselves. I think less of as a co-op by the sounds of it, Mark Andre, and more than a straight up business going head to head with Cabela's and other major chains like that. So, right. you know, who needs amateurs when you're out there messing with the pros at a, right. a seven figure uh, annual on a seven figure annual basis? We don't need amateurs around the table. So let's sort of overlook the democratic values attached to this co-op model and proceed with our people around the table. That was a big mistake for, from where you're sitting. I think so. I mean, I think it, there's a kind of um, a down, an underestimation of the power of having not the same type of people at a table. I mean, I think that diversity at a table is at a, is really important for an organization to make good decisions. And we saw this story. The reason I kind of wrote that piece is because we've seen the story play out before um, with, this, with the wheat pool, for example. Yep. Um, again, there was an effort to professionalize the board to kind of uh, to get, you know, float stock share offerings, um, all in this kind of effort to be super competitive. Also, this coincided, and this, I don't think there's, it's actually not a coincidence, but these massive expansion attempts. You know, in the, in the wheat pool case, you know, farmers who knew the business remember very vividly when the wheat pool overpaid for a competitor. They all knew that the competitor, the wheat pool was buying, was not worth what it was paid, what was paid for. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and so you lose that kind of basic on-the-ground knowledge uh, when you professionalize your board overly. Now, it's not a bad idea to have a few professionals. I don't dismiss that. Right. But the idea is you should have some di- diversity around the board table. We don't only elect lawyers um, to the parliament, and there's a good reason for that. Um, maybe we, some, some would say we have too many, but, you know, there's, we want 
we want people from different walks of life making big decisions about our society, and thing, and I think that applies to co-ops as well. Are right, interesting. So uh, as uh, but as the, uh, the was it expansion was just the fact that it like guys people like you all over Canada. You were in Ottawa at the time, just yeah. d- decided to join right. up to this really cool outdoor place that's uh, you know local and and high quality and 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 really full of helpful staff and all the rest of it. That became a real thing and expansion. Uh, pop, you know, supply and demand. All of those, all of those laws kicked in, and so was it expansion that ultimately did Mountain Equipment Co-op in Mark Andre. Well, in some way, I mean, I think it's, it's important, and I, I think I always want to be careful. And you know, in an eight hundred word article, you can't say everything, but the competitive market was brutal. Of course, you know, they were up against the sales of the world and the Cabela's yeah. and the Amazons and all the rest. And and their 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 analog down in the United States REI is facing some similar challenges, although um, they're they're getting through this. Um, so I think it's important to say that um, it's important to say they did have a very strong business model. Of course, you know there's opportunities to expand. You want to take them, but there was a sudden burst of expansion activity right around the time these governance changes happened. We're going to open a whole bunch of new stores. We're going to expand radically our product line. And, and what you're doing when you do that is you're changing your membership base, and it gets harder and harder to, to please everyone. Um, the, the great thing about MEC is they had a, a great niche, and this happens a lot, I think, with businesses. You have a great niche, and they think, well, we can do everything, and they start trying to do everything. Ah. And, and, and that's where you get into trouble. And you need a board of people who actually shop a lot at the co-op to say, whoa, 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 this, this, <laughs> this might not be a great idea. Uh, I won't recognize myself at this place anymore or, you know, it's, it's going to be a different kind of place and we're going to lose what made us special. And I think that's, that's the kind of information you lose when you overly professionalize your board. I suppose the you other problem too, Mark Andre, would we would be with expansion suddenly as you and you talked about rapid expansion. So all of a sudden yeah. you've got a client base, uh, people coming into stores to buy stuff that don't necessarily care as much as you did when you first That's signed true. up. You 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 wanted to become a member. A lot of these people are just happy being customers. Yes. Yes, and again, I should say, when I first joined, I was one of those people, but I evolved. I guess then there's an opportunity for that evolution. But, you you know, at the time, the co-op was kind of reinforcing that membership perspective. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think as that changes, and, and your your point is really a really good one, as you grow your membership, you bring in a whole lot of new people um, who were like me way at the beginning. You didn't really know much or care much about the co-op. Sure. But if you don't give them the opportunity to kind of find out and learn and get involved, then you're really you're really losing that, and you're just building a client base, a pure client base, not a member base. And so I think that's, that's exactly what happened. And it's a, again, it's a predictable thing. We see this in a lot of successful co-ops. They start expanding so quickly. They take on so many new members, have no relationship to the co-op part of the co-op. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then it gets easy to change the, the organization and get into trouble. Were you surprised at all? Yesterday, when the sale of Mountain Equipment Co-op to uh, Kingswood Capital uh, Management uh, was proclaimed to have been a done deal by the courts. Yeah, sadly, no. I, I, I was very supportive of the efforts to turn this around. Um, in fact, I signed petitions and you know got involved. But I, I, don't, I didn't see it happening just because once you're in that process, the, organiza- the, the court's focus is on saving what it can of the business and saving what it can of the jobs and, you know, making sure the creditors don't get burned too much. And so the owner's interests fall way, way down the list. I mean, they're the last, they're the last interest that the court's going to consider. And that's, it's too bad. I just, I just knew that it was too far gone at that point, but uh, the effort is still worthwhile in my view, because it draws attention to the the fact that members are owners, and and if they're not attentive and if they're not involved, um, they can find their organization they love and care about uh, falling down this slope as well. Yeah. The final question to you, Doctor Pichon. We're great to have grateful to have you with us this morning. Do you think that MEC, in some form or another, will carry on, or will ultimately it just collapse? Yeah, that's a that's a tough one. <laughs> I mean, I would I would kind of dial back and say, you know, the market is uh, really competitive, and we know that, and this is partly what got them there. Uh, they 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 have uh, you know, the COVID certainly hasn't been helping. They have a new investor. I think they've lost some of their brand value, some of that that kind of goodwill that the members, you know, that that hundred and thirty or hundred and forty thousand people that signed those petitions or or donated money. 
they're they're probably not going to yeah, buy there, uh, and and, yep. and I'm not going to be buying there. You know, it doesn't. I have no more attachment to the place. Um, and certainly in Saskatoon, there's not even a store, and the store that we were expecting to get won't be open. So ah. it's <laughs> you know, there's going to be some retrenchment for sure, and and maybe they can turn that around. I don't know. It's I'm, I'm I try to stay away from crystal balling uh, yeah. too much um, on these things. Uh, uh, just a, a final quote for uh, for our listeners this morning. The most pressing problems facing society are not moral but institutional. When people are enabled to work together toward a common goal, they can change the world. This is the mission statement for the Canadian Centre for the Study of Cooperatives. It's been a pleasure speaking with its director this morning, Dr. Marc-André Pigeon at the University of Saskatchewan, and that's where you'll find the Canadian Centre for the Study of Cooperatives. Marc-André, thanks very much for this. A pleasure to speak with you. My pleasure. Thank you so much. I just wanted to take a note of some of the offer. Claire will be back with us tomorrow morning in her usual 9.30 Sunday morning travel segment. And as is her custom and has been her custom for this summer, uh, she'll be looking at a lot of deals in and around British Columbia as the notion of staycation has been impressed upon us all. And many of us have taken advantage of that. I'm going back now two weeks ago this weekend. Here's one of the deals that Claire offered. This one was for Kamloops from now through to the end of the month. It includes two nights at a new four-star hotel with wine tasting at the Monte Creek Winery and passes and parking to the BC Wildlife Park, all for $159 bucks plus $54 in tax. So that's basically uh, two bucks or $200 a head per person based on double occupancy. That's a heck of a deal. So this is all part of efforts being made by tourism groups all over British Columbia to try and draw us to their regions to help offset the lack of international guests. And it's a pleasure to welcome Beverly DeSantis to the program today. Beverly is the head of the Tourism Kamloops uh, region and is here to talk about staycationing and how it's all worked out for her industry. Beverly DeSantis, good morning and thank you for joining us today. Good morning. How are you today? I'm terrific, thanks, Beverly. How are you doing? Well, not so bad. I I can't believe people wake up this early on a Saturday morning. Holy cow! <laughs> I know it's supposed to be the sleep-in <laughs> day, but you know, I know. Uh, here we are—a city of two million people. There are just too many of us not to have a whole bunch of people awake at any given time of the day. Exactly. So, yeah. so you know, we've been off. Claire's been doing a fabulous job, and I know she's um, one of many in in the travel business here in British Columbia that really has bent over backwards all summer long, Bev, to talk about. Uh, and to try and entice us into staying home uh, by providing all sorts of nifty offers and cut rate deals and this, that, and the other thing. And here we are now in the month of October. This is, by the way, when a lot of people, yours truly included, actually like to go on holidays. The kids are back in school, Beverly. This is when people who don't deal with kids in their lives on a regular basis, this is when we go on vacation. So it's not over yet, but how's it been going so far? Well, it's actually, you know, it's, it's, it's a relief in a time of difficulty for our tourism industry, for sure. And to mobilize British Columbians and our neighbors, uh, neighbors to the east to come visit our province has been a welcome relief to our tour operators. Sure. So they're getting uh, a lot more creative in, in how we package things and entice locals to come and explore our province. I know my husband and I have been doing the same around Kamloops and around British Columbia. I just got back from the Caraboochal Colton area uh, two days ago. We have an amazing province and uh, so much to see and do. I mean, you can literally, uh, if you were to set your mind to it and had a decent set of wheels, you could sit, You could literally spend the rest of your life exploring British Columbia. It may not take you the rest of your life, Beverly, but it would shock you how long it did take. British Columbia is huge, and it's so diversified. It's such a fabulous place to explore. Uh, this summer, with uh, the staycation uh, and uh, and some deals being offered, what was the volume like? Uh, uh, you know, taking a hundred percent as a typical summer say last year even just a year ago compare this year's volume to a year ago now so last year our occupancy in our uh, accommodators were sitting somewhere anywhere between 
76 to capacity. Okay. And this year, uh, we had a few um, days that bumped up to, you know, just around 60, 65%, but the average has been sitting around uh, 23 to 25% occupancy. Ouch. That's devastating. Yeah, that's that's not even break even. You know, it's the same with the restaurant business down here in Metro Vancouver, Beverly. It's, uh, you know, even with with these 30% uh, uh, DoorDash type uh, commissions they're paying, nobody's making any money. And and even with patios, if you're really, really lucky, you're breaking even. Profit, uh, an ancient uh, uh, sort of almost quaint uh, concept. So exactly. Uh, and now with winter coming, uh, and of course in the Kamloops area, you are blessed with sun peaks and, and other winter amenities. Are you expecting things to turn in your favor at all? Well, one of the things that, <clears throat> of many things, one of the things is Kamloops is an outdoor adventure playground. There's just, we're, we're geared towards that, our trails, um, mountain biking, cross-country skiing. Uh, we've got facilities. We had the BC Winter Games here a couple of years ago. Yeah. And really highlighted what we can do here in wintertime. So since that time, we've really been focusing on those sorts of outdoor activities in the wintertime. And then strengthening our partnerships with uh, folks like Harper uh, Mountain and Sun Peaks and Stake Lake. So we are really boosting, uh, trying to boost the conversation around winter travel Kamloops is a very accessible city, whether you're going east and west or north and south, all all roads lead in and out of Kamloops. Sure. So we're hopeful that, you know, folks will take a couple of days and explore their province um, coming through Kamloops. And, and yes, enjoying, enjoying our ski hills, our outdoor adventure, and our blue skies. I mean, the one thing about winter in Kamloops is it's sunny and usually not that cold, but we still have the snow and and the the playground feel to it uh, it's, so we're, we're very hopeful it's the proverbial dry cold story that and it really does make an enormous difference my son and 10 of his friends from metro vancouver went up to sun peaks for a few days just last week beverly oh yeah and, and they played three different golf courses and just had an absolute blast they rented a place and stayed up there they just they couldn't have had more fun if they tried uh, they looked like it when they got back <laughs> but, but it was a bachelor pre-wedding thing and they all went nuts and they had a great time but they said what the one thing that and i had uh, supper with my son the other night and he was telling me about it he said the the thing that that impressed us all the most was the people everywhere we yeah. went people were really happy to see us and couldn't have been nicer yeah that's you know i moved to kamloops uh, my husband and i about four years ago from calgary and we didn't know anybody. We I landed here at eight o'clock in the morning and started work at nine and knew the four people that interviewed me. And and so it's pretty scary in your fifties to up and up and move to a new city. Sure. Where, you know. And I fell in love with it right away. Then the just fortunate enough, the night that I landed was uh, the night of the finals for the Canadian hockey between Canada and the U.S. And seems all of Kamloops showed up. And one of the things that impressed me most was they cheered just as loud for the U.S. Uh, team as they did for the Canadian team. And, you know, uh, it's it's that welcoming feel that makes us the tournament capital. It is that the people that make us a desirable uh, destination, um, very accepting, very kind. And, and I can say that as someone who is an outsider that really felt uh, the warmth of this community coming in here as a stranger. And I think... That's what makes a, such a vibrant tourism economy is when your people become ambassadors and welcome the world to your doorstep. So I, I have a, a very fortunate job that my community is 110% behind tourism. Yeah, everybody works for the Chamber of Commerce. And isn't that wonderful? Beverly DeSantis is on the line from Kamloops, where she is the CEO of Tourism Kamloops. We're talking about, well, summer 2020 when we were uh, encouraged. And you know what? I think, Bev, to be true, a a lot of us have done our best or what we consider to be our best. We recognize that tourism is a, a major contributor to our economy. There are hundreds of thousands of people in the job, billions of dollars at stake. We don't have all that money. We can't replicate the behaviors and certainly don't have the resources of our 
typical annual visitors from abroad, but we've got out there as best we can and and checked out as much of BC as we can afford to see and so on. And, and you're telling us that despite those efforts, you're, you're still way down in terms of numbers for the hospitality industry. So let's talk about a pitch that you and others in the industry uh, here in BC made to both the province and the feds this summer for some kind of re- recovery uh, stimulus package. Have you been able to uh, realize any of those funds beyond the packages that the feds have already made available? Yeah, so the industry reached out to our provincial government asking for $680 million in uh, grants and low interest or no interest loans to help this industry through to summer so that we do have an industry left Mm -hmm. for people to travel to come time when the borders start to open again. You know, BC, as you mentioned, uh, tourism contributes $22 billion to our economy and 300,000 jobs. So this is one of the largest contributors to our GDP and economy, period. Mm-hmm. So the government had recognized that. they We had asked for $680 million. We received just over $100 million in uh, different programming uh, assistance programs from the uh, provincial government. However, a lot of these programs, it's a great start and our minister is, uh, you know, very helpful and, and very supportive. However, the programs are, are, a lot of them speak to development of infrastructure and uh, destination development. Right. And what we, what we do need right now is we need support for businesses to stay open. And so some of the the programs, although we want to continue to build our industry and build the destinations and infrastructure and pathways and those enjoyable uh, experiences for our visitors, Mm -hmm. what is really necessary and needed right now is a a boost to to the businesses so that they can stay open. That's interesting that you would mention um, infrastructure, Beverly, specifically because that is the buzzword that uh, Catherine McKenna and her uh, ministry, they have $10 billion that they are apparently committing 100% to, quote, infrastructure. Now, there are all sorts of strings attached to that, but might that be a fund that you could look to uh, for a piece of? Yes, I. you know, they, they have allocated infrastructure funding uh around I think 50 or 60 million to destination development infrastructure improvement you know those sorts of programs right. uh, directly related to tourism but you can go cross ministerial and and you know get this this funding um, from from other sources as well okay. and, and be be creative that way it's just a matter of um, if I can be so blunt as to say I don't know how much of an appetite there is to build new infrastructure during COVID for tourism. No question. And so to me, it's, it would be more helpful to actually support the businesses that are already in business and that, you know, employ already. There are some programs for employment uh, through the federal government. The provincial government has announced a 15% support. If you add more people uh, to your, to your, um, Hmm. payroll now but again i don't know how many people through the winter time would be adding uh folks in the tourism industry to their um payroll without covid let alone with covid happening so you know the conversation i'm really encouraged and the industry is really encouraged about this task force that they have put together that uh the uh, minister will be talking about how to spend this other $50 million and where that needs to go. And then they also said this was just a start and that hopefully February, the new budget in February will address issues um, more relevant to the, to the um, industry at that time. Yeah. So we're hopeful. Yeah. February is a long way away from October. If you're, you're, you're stretched pretty thin and some, and you know, and I know people who are stretched so thin, they may snap uh, long before February. Uh, let's talk a little bit about uh, winter expectations. Uh, Sun Peaks, just a, a few minutes up the road from where you are this morning, Beverly, what, what, what is the skiing and resort community telling you about their expectations for the season ahead? 
Well, you mentioned just earlier that your son and his friends had gone up to Sun Peaks yeah, and uh, great time. you know really enjoyed the summer product up there. And I have to say, I've talked to a lot of people who have been up there myself this summer, and it was amazing. So moving into wintertime, I think these sort of bubble destinations will actually do quite well. And that is, you're going to a ski resort, you're kind of remote, you're not in a bigger center with a lot of a lot of people, their protocols are very, very strict right. up there. I was very impressed with the safety protocols. And as long as you keep it tight and you are following protocols, I think they're very hopeful for a very good season. And we're hopeful that they have a good season because that translate in, translates into a better season for the areas around Sun Peaks, such as Kamloops, Stake Lake, Harper, etc. Yeah. Uh, Beverly, a final question to you. And we're really grateful for your time on a Saturday morning. You mentioned that you'd moved to your new gig in Kamloops as CEO of the tourism industry from Calgary. So you, right. know, you know Southern Alberta. I used to live in Calgary, too. So how's that traffic been? Uh, BC relies heavily on Southern Alberta, particularly, uh, to uh, on an annual basis. Half the Okanagan is owned by, uh, by Albertans. How's, how's the traffic? <laughs> from next door been this year it has been uh quite steady and we are seeing a lot of license plates come through our city um from alberta you know into the shushwap and and into the thompson okanagan here alberta is still one of our largest markets sure. next to the lower mainland and we hope that will continue and they need a place to go as well right. and bc is a terrific alternative for them so we are pushing a lot of marketing initiatives towards that province. Beverly DeSantis up there at uh, Tourism Kamloops, where she is the CEO, has uh, been our guest in this last half hour. We wish you and your colleagues considerable success for the winter ahead, Beverly. Thanks for doing this with us today. We'll check back with you in a little bit, okay? Well, thank you so much, Sterling. I really appreciated the opportunity. Entirely my pleasure. Good news story here from the resource sector. Tosico Mines, uh, one of their mines, at least here in British Columbia, has been awarded... Uh, the Jake McDonald Award for Metal Mine Reclamation from the BC Technical and Research Committee on Reclamation. It uh, it's it sounds a little complicated, but it's definitely a positive story, and it's a pleasure to welcome and congratulate Brian Battison, VP Corporate Affairs with Tosico Mines. Brian, good morning. Congratulations. Oh, good morning, Tony, and thanks very much. I appreciate it. Well, it's good to have you with us. Now, let's uh, zoom in on the Gibraltar mine. What part of British Columbia are we looking at here? Williams Lake area. So okay. The central, south central part of British Columbia. Our mine is about 65 kilometers northeast of, uh, of Williams Lake. And our employees predominantly live in Williams Lake, and there are 700 of them, so it's a large mine. And, uh, and we have a big impact on Williams Lake in terms of the economic impact that we deliver to that town and to the central part of the province. Absolutely. And Brian, what specifically are you pulling out of the ground at Gibraltar? It's a copper mine. It's a, it's a large copper mine. It's the second largest copper mine in Canada. Uh, so it's, it's a big operation. It's been in operation for 50 years, Sterling. Mm -hmm. uh, so it started back in the early 70s, 71, 72, with an expected mine year life of about 12 years. And it's been operating almost continuously now for 50 years. So it really is uh, an enduring uh, good news story in terms of the economic output and, and social benefits that are generated by that mine. Absolutely. Well, if it was planned originally with a sort of long horizon of maybe lasting a dozen years, Brian, right. and it's yeah. lasted 50, clearly that would indicate a lot of success with the project over the years. But with success in the mining industry comes a lot of muck and a lot of need for reclamation. Tell us about that part. Yeah, well, we, we move about uh, 100 million tons of rock a year, and uh, that's a lot of rock. Mm -hmm. uh, we process, we don't process all of that. Uh, a lot of it is waste. Uh, and the, the waste rock that we don't use, it, it goes into, into large piles, uh, because after all, we're, we're digging a pretty large hole there. Mm -hmm. So what do you do with, with that? those large piles of rock and with that hole and, and uh, how do you restore it uh, and return it back to nature? And that's where a lot of science comes in. And interesting, uh, at, at Gibraltar, there's a lot of uh, young people that are interested in uh, environmental science and environmental technology and reclamation. And we're fortunate to have uh, a good share of those folks. 
and they do some amazing work in helping Mother Nature return that property uh, to nature. And this reclamation work is not, there's a misconception that reclamation work happens at the end of the mining process. That, that, that That's not true. Right. It actually happens every day that we're operating that mine. We're reclaiming uh, the area that we work, and uh, it's an ongoing thing starting. Absolutely. Well, you can't be in operation for 50 years without having uh, some kind of a reclamation uh, component to the operation. It's simply, you, you would have been surrounded by mountains of gunk otherwise, and that's just not on. The award, Brian, just to be quite specific, is for outstanding achievement in mine reclamation and indigenous collaboration. Talk to us about the second half of the award. Yeah, so, Walter, we have a reclamation crew that works uh, at the mine now for uh, a good many number of years, and they're from the Hatzel First Nation uh, community, mm-hmm. Toda Creek, and, um, and and their work is, is uh, in large measure, uh, they carry out the work, not the science of the work, but the actual on-the-ground work and, and planting the vegetation and reestablishing uh, the the kind of plant life and and shrub life and life that the that the creatures of the environment uh, depend on and and need, and so they they help to to restore that, move the soil, do the planting, and uh, help bring that area back. And of course, this clearly has not something is not something just sprung up in the last couple of weeks. This is a partnership that's been going on, presumably for decades, by the sounds of it, Brian. Yeah, it's been going on for a long time. There, there's a, a large component of our workforce relative to the population as First Nations people, mm-hmm. and, uh, at, and and there's a lot of satisfaction that that they take from from the environmental aspects of of mining. One of the things that they were interested in is uh, is the salmon in the Fraser River. Uh, that's an important source, food source for people all up and down the Fraser. Yes, and they were they were interested in how are the salmon doing? Not necessarily because of the mine, but just because of of the, the salmon spend a lot of time, four years, obviously, in the ocean and the rivers, and and how are they doing? So we we evolved partnership with them in a salmon sampling program along the Fraser River. They harvesting salmon at their traditional sites right. and us testing them and, and seeing seeing how the salmon are doing. Reassure the people that were concerned about it or, or wondering about it. And that was one of the partnerships that we did in addition to the work that we actually do on the mindset itself in terms of direct reclamation. Interesting stuff. The Jake McDonald Annual Award for Metal Mine Reclamation from the BC Technical and Research Committee on Reclamation. Again, this sounds like something that's been vetted pretty carefully, Brian. They don't hand this out uh, whimsically at all. <laughs> no, they sure don't. This this committee uh, was originated back in the early 1970s, and it's a committee of that's a joint government industry initiative. It's dedicated to environmental protection and reclamation associated with mining. The membership of the of the committee is made up of individuals that are drawn from the Ministry of Energy and Mining Petroleum Resources, from the Ministry of Environment. It's drawn from universities and from colleges and from industry associations. So these are they're scientific based people. Uh, there was a, uh, an interest and a need to further mining reclamation. It began early in the, in the 70s, as I mentioned. And so they're pretty capable, competent people that are examining the work that's done throughout British Columbia on their mine sites. And, and uh, this year we came out on top, and that's a tribute to the people that actually work on the ground at our mine site. It's a great story to be able to pass along and share with our listeners down here quite a distance from Williams Lake and the Gibraltar mine. It's just comforting, Brian, to know that kind of positive stuff is taking place in our own backyard. Congratulations to you and the entire team. Well done, sir. Thank you very much, Sterling. It's appreciated uh, talking to you about this. It's a pleasure to have you with us. Brian Battison is a VP Corporate Affairs with Tesico Mines up there uh, in Williams Lake, specifically the Gibraltar Mine, the recipient of a huge award for outstanding achievement in mine reclamation and indigenous collaboration in this weirdest of all possible years, 2020. Our congratulations to all the folks at Tesico. Our next guest is VC Seniors Advocate Isabel McKenzie. Always a pleasure to welcome Ms. McKenzie to the program, who's here this morning to talk to us about
wrote, the survey called Staying Apart to Stay, to Stay Safe, the Impact of Visitor Restrictions on Long-Term Care and Assisted Living. The survey closed a couple of days ago. Isabel McKenzie, thanks for joining us. Good morning. Good morning. It's good to have you with us, Isabel. Uh, the uh, survey closed just a couple of days ago. I suspect it's a bit premature for you to be able to announce uh, a, a full uh, roster of results. But can you give us any indication, at least, as to, for example, participation levels? Yes, we we had over uh, 10,000 responses. There's good. Still, we've got some surveys coming in from some care homes in other parts of the uh, province that we're going to be tabulating next week. So I think somewhere between um, eleven to 13,000 responses, completed responses in total, will be um, uh, we'll be able to tabulate. It looks like we we most of the responses are from family members of people living in long-term care. Right. But we also got a good response rate from people in assisted living um, because they're certainly uh, were covered by the visit restriction orders. Oh, yes. And we have heard from it uh, a number of residents as well. Um, it was open to residents. It was It's more difficult for residents to participate in it. But I think we're going to... Uh, have a, a, a good voice of residents reflected in the answers as well. And the phone, it was a, a phone-in survey, or you could do it online, and there was an element of anonymity to it. For example, you were not looking for uh, names of uh, facilities or, or residences necessarily at all, were you? No, we were, um, unlike other surveys we've done, which all are anonymous to the person, but we could link it to... Um, health data, we could link it to care home site. Right. We weren't able to do that in this survey because we had to do this quickly and online. But what we have found, um, and we have enough responses we've tabulated to sort of have confidence in the pattern, we are seeing good distribution throughout the province. So we're seeing um, from every health authority proportionately about what we would hear from uh, people given the proportion of people in long-term care and assisted living. Mm-hmm. Um, so we're we're feeling good that this will uh, give, be a good representation of what uh, is really the experience out there. Is the problem in part the experience is not universal? That it, it, the the uh, fragmented nature of senior care period allow, automatically creates a fragmented experience for people trying to visit uh, seniors in care facilities? Well, certainly, um, and this is by no means uh, complete. These are initial, and I always uh, <laughs> hesitate to, to give initial results because they could change. But I think we've, we've got enough and have reviewed enough to see um, that there very much is uh, a pattern of different experiences. And it started out at the very beginning around essential visits, right. how many, um, uh, what percentage of people were uh, able to obtain an essential visit, how many requests were, were made versus how many were granted. Um, that people, what was interesting is uh, now people who answer the survey are the people who, who are most involved. Sure. But over half of them were visiting several times a week, if not daily, before uh, the pandemic struck. So we have to think about that and think about what we're going to have as our life in long-term care for the next year, maybe more. I mean, COVID restrictions will be uh, probably the most um, long-lasting in our care homes, simply because that is our most vulnerable population. Right, And so... We have to think about the time that will be involved. Is the end game, uh, and it's a poor choice of words perhaps, but is the, the result of this survey designed to create a standardized policy that uh, is uh, pr- uh, applicable province-wide and understanding, of course, Isabel, that the COVID uh, pandemic uh, is a fluid situation that you know ebbs and flows, and there may be occasions where even standard policies need to be adjusted. Adjusted, but is that the idea behind the survey? That understanding how people feel province-wide, and then attempting to uh, set a, a set of standards that works for everyone everywhere. I 
I think, <clears throat> pardon me, ideally from our perspective, um, that is what we would like to see. Um, and what the survey is demonstrating is that that is not the current state. Sure. There is definitely different experiences. And I think it's also important to hear from those who are most affected by the visit restrictions, and those are the family members and the people who are living in care homes, as to what they think. And one of the things that is interesting is that uh, there's, a very, there's very strong support for some form of visit restrictions. Mm-hmm. In other words, no, the vast majority of people um, are not saying we need to be able to go back to the way it was where we could just come and go as we wanted, when we wanted. Right. Um, there's strong support for there's got to be some um, restriction here. Where I think uh, it's impacting people is around certainly the designation of one person only, and I think we have to certainly look at that, and I think we've, the, we've signaled that we are looking at that as we look at, you know, the months and, and possibly years ahead, and then the duration and the frequency and location of the visits. Sure. And so I think that as we understand uh, the variety of experiences out there, and it is the same virus, um, that it, it, we're going to have to uh, uh, understand that I think we can come to a more common acceptance of what of what there should be. Yeah, it's interesting that you would point, and I, I quite agree. I don't imagine any thinking person would want to go back to, oh, just, just stroll in the front door and walk in and say hi. That's just not going to happen. There is a pandemic after all. And and so recognizing the need for safety protocols and precautions is uh, is understandable. And yet when the when that those safety protocols and precautions go to essentially lockdown or locked out, that's where that's thing. That's where things got difficult, Isabel. And for many uh, family members in BC, they aren't much better this morning either, are they? No. And I think, as I say, what is very informative is the number of people who were visiting several times a week yeah. or daily. And so I think we need to look at okay, there are a group of people out there. I would like to say it's the majority of residents. It's not, um, because some residents don't have any visitors and some have uh, infrequent visitors. They don't have people who live nearby. Right. So we, I think, given what we know about not just layers of protection but layers of detection um, for this virus, uh, I think we can find a way to allow those who, whose frequency of visits um, were several times a week before um, the pandemic struck, I think we have to recognize that really 30 minutes or even an hour once a week for the foreseeable future for the next year really isn't where we want to be. And so how can we uh, set up a, a system that uh, allows those for whom the the more frequent visiting um, uh, is important and was there before. How can we make that work again? That yeah, again. Isabel, yeah. I, I'm afraid I'm out of time. I'm grateful for, for yours as always. It's always a pleasure to have you on the program. Now that the the information is being synthesized and readying for publication, obviously it'll be out soon. Let's talk again once it is a matter of pu- public uh, uh, information, and maybe after the politics is over and we can have a discussion uh, minus the hysteria of the election uh, lurking in the background. Thanks for this this morning. Always a pleasure. Thank you. Isabel McKenzie is BC's Seniors Advocate. Hi, it's Shauna, and I might be a bad parent because my kids think french fries are vegetables. Hey, it's Ryan, and I might be a bad parent because I went out for wings when my wife was in the hospital after giving birth. Johnny here. I might be a bad parent because in my house, the tooth fairy gives pocket change. But we're not alone. Len emailed us and said his six-year-old daughter's Tarzan moment going from love seat to lazy boy by curtains made him more proud than any dance (laughs) recital. And Andy left his two-year-old at the rink. All right, guys, I'm sure we're not alone, like Andy's kid. (laughs) For stories and confessions like this, make sure you check out our podcast. It's called Bad Parents, and it's available wherever you get your podcasts. I left a glove at the rink.